Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Railston. I'm your host today. I'm recording on a Monday morning after Manchester United drew 2-2 Tottenham Hotspur at Old Trafford. Um, in this podcast, we're going to get into that game, look at what went right, what went wrong, um, look at some transfer bits a bit later on. And we'll also have some audio um, from Sir Jim Ratcliffe's chat with journalists at Old Trafford, which was just before the game. So uh, stay tuned for that because it should be quite interesting. Uh, I'm joined by Samuel Lockhurst. And Samuel, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It was a bit of a crowd in there, uh, prob- probably too crowded. I think there were five on the same on, on the payroll of the same organisation. There were some faces in there um, that you rarely see at Old Trafford. It was um, it, it was a, a, ven- a veritable who's who of, of, of journalists in the in the press conference room. We'll get into the game, Samuel. Uh, as I said, two two in the end. United took the lead twice in the in the first half. Spurs equalised uh, immediately after a uh, half time. I felt a bit deflated after that second half. Um, did you feel the same in the press box? I don't know if deflated is is the right word. You're you're impartial when you're in the press box and and, and doing your job. Uh, I think if you're a I think if you're a United supporter, you should be disappointed. If you're a Tottenham supporter, you'd probably be a little bit disappointed as well not to have taken three points because I do think United were there for the taking in the second half. They they didn't have a an attempt on target in the second half whatsoever. If Spurs, um, I think Tottenham had eleven players missing, and I, I I'd argue at least four, maybe five of them are first teamers. They they had almost almost their entire front six was was that uh, their starting front six was was missing yesterday. And um they still they were still recognisably Tottenham under Ange Postacoglu, the way they conducted themselves, the way they played. I thought they were very good at one nil down. They didn't beat about the bush in terms of getting an equaliser in the second half. And um, I found some of the, I mean, Postacoglu had a good line when he uh, spoke to uh, Tottenham's in-house media after the West Ham defeat last month, I think it was. And he said, you know, we've we've got to get away from this forced positivity post-match. And it it feels like that's that's become the theme of of United season, forced positivity, because although they scored two good goals, this was a missed opportunity. Tottenham were pretty damn depleted. Um, I mean, both teams had two goalkeepers on their on their bench, but when United went one nil up three minutes in, I just thought, well, they can maybe they can take this game away from Tottenham quite quickly and have a, a you know a really uplifting win, as as we discussed last week. They needed a Philip going into February, but um, I think it's I can't remember the exact tally again now um, in terms of how long they've been ahead in games at Old Trafford in the league this season, but it's it's only just just ahead of two hours I think maybe 136 minutes something like that and that was a problem again yesterday they they, they weren't in the lead for long enough and when they were 1-0 up Tottenham were by far and away the better side when the first equaliser came along it had been coming and as, as you know as, as swift as Spurs were in scoring in the second half come the end of the game you certainly would not have begrudged them uh, get, getting the win but it, it, it was a strange second half because the first half was very entertaining as it often is between United and Spurs, but the second half did meander, and it would have been it would have been a travesty had had McTominay put that that late chance um, between the posts rather than than over the crossbar. And history really should have repeated itself there. Him being thrown on in a game where United had very very little control, and him him salvaging a win from it, and again. It, it, had it gone in, it would have been, a, although it would have been, you know, a hell of an ending. It would have been another game where 
I think a lot of people would have felt, well, it seems to have papered over the cracks again uh, because United's lack of control is, is is really risible under, particularly under a coach who was brought in to implement a style where it's controlling, it's proactive. I think the intent of having two technicians in midfield starting was you know to, to play on the front foot and, and they didn't. They didn't play um, in that manner whatsoever and it was telling that one of those midfielders was hooked before the hour mark. When you just look at the, there were, I mean, there are far too many stats in football these days anyway, but there are relevant stats. One is attempts on target. United had two yesterday. So on one hand, you could say they were very clinical. On the other hand, you could say, and I think the wider point is two attempts on target at home against Tottenham, a depleted Tottenham is is pretty dire. And also 36% possession of the ball uh, at home against Tottenham is pretty desperate as well. Uh, I don't. I can't imagine that's ever happened for United against Tottenham um, since since rec- those records began and those stats started coming into football. Um, you know, they've they've faced far better Tottenham teams in in recent years under uh, Pochettino and and um, maybe not so much Conte or Mourinho, but they've had a few you know good games against Spurs when when Pochettino was the coach, and I, I don't think that they'd have ever had the low had a possession stat as low as 36% and the irony is this is happening under a coach who is obviously he's Dutch so immediately you think treasuring the ball retaining possession being proactive in possession and um, United were recognisable for all the wrong reasons in that sense and Tottenham were recognisable for all the right reasons I mean they had all these players missing and yet they still played in a way um, that is very recognisably Spurs under Postacoglu and He's a coach who's been there for six months and Ten Hag is a coach who's been at United for 18 months. I felt deflated because the first half was so positive. It was an entertaining game, uh, both sides contributing to that. In the second half, I think the tempo dropped a bit and then Spurs just kind of dominated proceedings, had a lot of the ball. They probably should have won. Um, obviously, a, a draw in the end. They'll feel a, a bit annoyed at that, but I guess a, a point at Old Trafford can never really be stiffed at. You've discussed the, the lack of control in midfield there, Samuel. I think that's a key point with we've seen it all season we suggested it would be the right thing to bring Christian Eriksen into the midfield that's what happened he started alongside Kobe Menu and Bruno Fernandes but it was just easily bypassed wasn't it there was an absolute lack of control um, Spurs found it really easy to dominate um, and why why is that happening because you look man for man talent on the pitch you can't sit there and say Tottenham had a better a better side and more quality on the pitch. You've discussed how many absentees they've had. They've got players injured, key players, players, son, for example, he's at the Asia Cup, uh, two players at the Africa Cup of Nations as well. So we've talked about United's injury crisis this season, <clears throat> pardon me, and we've said uh, results have been bad because they've been missing key players and that's been a huge element and, and a, basically an excuse. But Spurs have just gained Old Trafford, being the much better side with all their best players. Yeah, see, I've I've never I've never cited the injuries as as an excuse uh, for United's form this season. It's it's obviously context. There's there's some mitigation from time to time, but I think the the one who's been playing that card, whilst saying I'm not using it as an excuse, is is obviously Ten Hag. But it, it just doesn't wash when, as you said, the, and it's not just Tottenham. There are a lot of teams that have had um, quite you know a fair amount of injury told to to contend with this season because. Clearly, you know, the, the ridiculous decision to have a Winter World Cup and to have a World Cup in, in Qatar um, has, has had a detrimental effect on, on players' fitness and conditioning. Um, they've been overtaxed and there are very few cases where a player can 
withstand that that workload. I mean, the, the one who springs to mind is, is Bruno Fernandes, who has literally never, ever missed a Manchester United game through injury. I think he's missed one game for United when he was when he was unwell, uh, and, and that was coming up to two years ago and, and coincidentally against Spurs at home. But going back to the midfield, uh, look, the, the team they picked, that Ten Hag picked, I think everybody would, would have agreed with, uh, especially as Luke Shaw, who was um, due to be in the starting lineup, but but with with um, withdrew on Sunday morning. The, the way the defence was mapped out was, was a mistake. I don't think anybody would really dispute that. But... Ericsson obviously is a, is a technician. McTominay isn't. You think, well, you know, Tottenham are going to be quite depleted in midfield and trying to work out what their team was. I think you know I had a pretty good idea of it, given the absences and uh, some of the squad news we got on the the Saturday night. That you know that there was a chance they were going to have to play Hoiberg skip uh, with with Benton Kerr. I think Benton Kerr is a quality player, and you'd argue that he's he'd be an ever present when when everyone is fit in in that Tottenham eleven. But there's you know, Skip, I've never particularly rated, yet he played really well yesterday. Uh, Hoiberg, I don't think he's necessarily got a long-term future at Spurs. Under Postacoglu, he's he's a fair way down the pecking order, but he put a shift in yesterday. And really, as I said to Rich in the press box yesterday, when, when you're watching Ericsson perform like that, United must be regretting his, his contract not being a two plus one, unless there's been another miscommunication there in terms of the length of it. But he's on a three-year contract. And let's face it, I, I think it's very doubtful that a club are going to come in um, for him in the summer and, and offer a fee to um, and, and his stay at United early. I think United are probably saddled with him for the, you know, the, certainly another, the best part of another year. Maybe something could shift along the way that sees, uh, you know, a, a passing of the ways or, maybe an MLS team come in for him and that's an attractive offer for him to end his career. But he's, you know, old father time has really caught up with him, even though he's not, he's not really that old. I mean, I think he turns 32 next month. Casemiro does as well, but it does seem like age has, has, has caught up with those two players, particularly um, th- this season. And maybe with Ericsson, it's been a case over the last year since he got that, um, you know, th- that very crude, crude foul by, by Andy Carroll on him that sidelined, Ericsson for the best part of three months and he's he struggled to reach the heights of his first his first few months at United when he, he played very well and everyone knew he was, he was going to be a short-term addition I think when he signed for the club they probably saw him as just this backup short-term option uh, ideally from Ten Hag's perspective it would have been Frankie De Jong starting every game and Ericsson being this game changer but in the end he turned out to be um, a regular for United last season and like, you can you can accuse him of of not tracking back or not putting a shift in for the Bentancur goal. I, I don't think he's that kind of player at all, Ericsson. I just think that he's not got the legs anymore. And uh, Ten Hag pretty much acknowledged that when he decided to substitute him, what, 10 minutes later? And um, he's, he's, he's limited as well, of course, at the moment. Casemiro has not played in, in, in coming up to three months. So it was always going to be McTominay who's going to come on. I know that's not going to please everyone, but it, it should have it should have paid off because he had that great chance right at the death where, as Ten Hag said ten times, it, normally he'd expect him to put that away ten times out of ten, but this was one occasion where he, he, he couldn't keep it down. And look, we as we've discussed before about injuries, yes, this, that and the other, but this is Ten Hag's team. Kobe Mainu, who I thought, you know, it was one of his more challenging games yesterday. I thought he still did did okay. He needs more help from someone like Ericsson, who first played in the Premier League more than a decade ago. He's he spent 
most of his career in the Premier League. He, he's you've got to expect more from those players. Um, Casemiro's coming on on Ten Hag's watch, but he's become injury prone this season. Nobody's going to be coming away from that game yesterday saying United really missed Sofyan Amrabat. He's another one of Ten Hag's signings. Nobody's coming away from the game saying that United are really missing the impetus that Mason Mount brings because they haven't missed him. But again, he's another one of Ten Hag's signings. So however way you try to couch it or any context that you may try to uh, give to you know, try and almost ease the strain on Ten Hag or ease the pressure on him, this is his team. This is his squad. And the one midfielder who has probably overperformed this season is the player that United were open to shipping out in the summer in McTominay. And, and again, he almost r- repeated his, his rescue act from, from Brentford yesterday. Uh, so I, I don't think Ten Hag, as, as often as he is playing the excuse card while saying he's not playing the excuse card, you can't excuse the way United are, are, are playing at the moment in, in certain games. It's, it's all well and good having 60% of the ball against Wigan because everyone knows they're going to have that much of the ball against a, a League One team and it will be similar against Newport or, or Eastley uh, in, in just under two weeks' time. But the acid test is against your, you know, your competitors in the Premier League, and um, you can you could see yesterday why Tottenham are eight points clear of United, even with all these very influential players that they were they were without. The mirror back four was interesting. Um, I think it's fair to say. I've never looked at Wan Bissaka and thought I'll play him at left back. I know Ten Hag explained that in his post match press conference by saying look we prepared with Luke Shaw on that side and he was a late drop out so we put Wamba Saka in but surely you just adapt and put Wamba Saka right back and, and that at left back that would be the logical thing to do uh, for me anyways I feel like two and a half years ago Samuel around September 2021 we were sitting on this podcast and we are talking about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his future and what was going wrong <clears throat> pardon me again and we're seeing he relied on moments of brilliance there were players producing um, and there was the tactical plan was lacking there was a lack of identity and it feels like we're having the same conversations if you fast forward we've seen this script before um, it's happening again and for all the accusations that Solskjaer got about moments of brilliance we've seen a lot of that this season where United are only scoring through those moments to just not convince another No, it's it's a very relevant point it actually cropped up in my match piece yesterday I think I wrote that there was uh, tactically unsophisticated and one-dimensional as they were under under Solskjaer. And what was noticeable in the first half was that the the three the, there were three two or three occasions where they they exposed uh, Tottenham, and it was through um, direct uh, you know quite probing passes from Fernandez. Come the second half, Tottenham had got wise to it, and when you know when Fernandez was trying it again, they were they were swamping him and. You know they they'd learned their lesson, and that's that's good management. You you get them in for the second half, and you clearly tell them one way that they can improve their performance uh, for, for for the next forty five minutes. I mean, Ten Hag he he really should have reorganised the defence at half time. I know he he came up with this. You know, I I asked him the question about Wambasaka playing at left back, and he thought it would have been too much of a reorganisation to um, not only put Wambasaka in the team but put him on the right side and Dallow on the left. And I just thought, well, it's a bit of a cop-out because th- th- there is a game in recent memory where Wambasaka started at right-back and Dallow at left-back. I mean, Newcastle away, not a great example given how badly it went, but that is an example of th- those players playing those positions. And, and Dallow is is a right-back who is quite 
you know, Samuel, they play those positions all the time. I know. That's, yeah, that's Dallas exactly. very versatile. He plays at left back all the time. Exactly. He, he, um, his breakout forms for Porto was at left back at Anfield nearly six years ago. I, I completely agree. I, you know, Ten Hag offered context. Fair enough. Does does that really? Do, do people you know really think that that's a legitimate excuse for playing Wan Bissaka there? No, I think he looked quite discombobulated. I mean, he's not he's not an adventurous player anyway, and he's certainly a player that United really do need to be considering getting a fee for in the summer for a number of reasons. You know, FFP, but also improving the squad because they could do with a better a better fullback, a better right back. But he he looked even more reticent yesterday. There was the time when he got the ball and. Uh, I think he was just inside the United half after they'd botched another corner. And I thought he's going to go back to the keeper here. And he didn't need to go back to the keeper if he was quick witted enough, but he wasn't quick witted enough. And the ball, of course, went back to Anana. And of course he lost Richarlison for, um, f- for the goal. It was, it was pretty meek marking there. And uh, he, he got booked before the, before half time. maybe a little bit unfortunate there. It was definitely a foul. I think he, the referee could have exercised some, some leniency. But as as you said, this this mirror back four. Everyone, if if you switched it, everyone would have been in the logical position where I think you know the match graphic would have had them lining up in the. Even Evans and Varane, you'd say we'd have them on the on a different side. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know this this is the walking contradiction that is Eric Ten Hag in that it's I want my left sided players on the left and my right sided players on the right. And yesterday it was the it was the polar opposite. And okay, look, Martinez is back now. I have no doubt he'll start in the the cup game because it's a very yeah, you know, it's it's a it's it's the perfect opportunity to ease him back into the team ahead of a more testing match at Wolves uh, four days later in United's first league game next month. And Luke Shaw should be back then as well. And then you've got Leftfoot and Leftfooter, and hopefully that contradiction can end, provided those two stay fit and. Come the summer, it's, it's maybe in United's interests uh, as far as you know d- d- the defence concerned. Do that? Do they look for a left-footed uh, centre back, or is it a right-footer to complement Martinez, which is, is probably the more likely scenario? Or do they try and sign two of them? I mean, we 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 still don't know there. Um, but again, like you know, as I said about forced positivity, and you know, there were a lot of questions about the partnership between Hoyland and, and Rashford. And yes, they they've scored goals, but look, the bigger picture is Man United have had thirty six percent possession at home against Tottenham. They've looked incapable of defending corners. They've blown two leads in that game. They've had two attempts on target. Tottenham are eight points clear of them uh, in the Premier League table. United yesterday moved up from eighth to seventh. Their next game will be in February. This is patently not good enough. And yeah, Ten Hag was saying his, in his programme notes yesterday about the optimism around the place. And I thought, my God, it wasn't that long ago that they lost to Forest. I mean, that was their last, their previous league game before yesterday. And I think they've got, was it three, three league wins in the last nine now as well? Um, What's the quote from George, George Orwell? Is it the most important command from the party was to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears? Something like that. Anyways, from 1982. Yeah. Very good. 1984, I think. 1984, there you go. Do you know what? Ironically, I've got the book right there in front of us. I could have just looked up. 1984, George. Above Animal Farm, which is, uh, everyone should read that. Two GCSE classics from my uh, from my vintage. But yes, that that, that is a, a very, very relevant quote. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it go in your piece at lunchtime, I think. <laughs> 
Uh, we'll leave it there for part one. We'll be back in a moment for part two. No one covers Manchester United quite like the Manchester Evening News. And through our MUFC Pro app, you can support our journalism and become part of our United community. Getting the best experience ad-free, pop-up free and distraction free as well. Giving you the best news and interviews, great features and much more. Now is the perfect time to subscribe as we've just launched a special New Year offer which includes MEM Premium for just £12 for 12 months. Download the app and get started today. Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now, as Samuel says, uh, said in the first part, United are now seventh on 32 points and eight points of drift of the Champions League places. Arsenal and Tottenham are level on 40. I think it's probably time to have a, a frank discussion about Ten Hag and Samuel. I mean, we've kind of just got into it there in the first part, but the, the two reasons for defending Ten Hag this season um, and, and the poor results have been the ownership. It's been the same. The players have still still been at the club and making a change hasn't made much sense uh, when that situation is the same. Obviously, now Sergeant Ratcliffe is coming in assuming control of football operations, so that has changed. Um, and also, I mean, you kind of played it down the first part, but the injury crisis, um, I feel supporters have been quite sympathetic and they feel when everyone was available, results should improve. Now, everyone kind of is available, or they will be very soon. Casemiro and Martinez are back on the bench. You've got Harry Maguire, Mason Mount, etc. coming back in the next few weeks. So they, there's definitely no more excuses anymore for Ten Hag Samuel. Um, Ineos are at the club. They're going to take stock of the situation. And it's going to be a very interesting next few months as, as far as his future is concerned because it does feel like now he had a fantastic first year, but it feels like he's fighting for his future. There are no two ways about it. I think he is. I think he's got to make an impression over the the, the next four months. Uh, you you only have to look at recent or um, not not too recent examples of new investment, new owners uh, going into football clubs, and what happens not 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 too long after they come in is that there's a change of manager. It's the case with Fenway Sports Group with uh, when when they went in at Liverpool. I think Roy Hodgson was turfed out after two or three months. Obviously, with Clear Lake Capital and and Chelsea, Thomas Tuchel was was gone quite early uh, in, into last season. I think he only lasted seven games in, into last season. Uh, the, the Abu Dhabi takeover of, of Manchester City, Mark Hughes had a little bit longer, but he was still still sacked about. I think it must have been about fifteen months after after that takeover was was completed so there's it's not a coincidence this happens when new new faces come in and take ownership and take control of of of, of a football club and of course Ineos are going to be in control of football operations they they do tend to like to have someone in as manager who is fully aligned with them and is also their choice and it was um i mean i think you know when we spoke very briefly to Ratcliffe yesterday we asked him certain questions and he answered some. He was, he was quite bashful. I think he was, you know, I think he was also a little bit, you know, excited, but trying to contain it until they, they, uh, until Ineos uh, granted the regulatory approval. Um, but one question he was asked was um, what his first impressions were of um, the stadium of Carrington. He hesitated at first. And then I think he said, I, I don't think that would be appropriate. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, you know, you can read into that what you will. But of course, first impressions of, of certain aspects of, of Manchester United are, are not great. And this is this has not been 
this has objectively not been a good season for for the manager. You only have to look at the the wins and the the defeats column. They've won thirteen games and they've lost fourteen games. They've still lost more than they've won this season. They've gone out of the only cup competition they've won in the last six and a half years. They're out of Europe altogether. Um, went out of that altogether. And even though, even those Christmas. wins, Samuel, like the, the majority have been unconvincing. I think nine out of ten yeah, have been have. by one goal. You look at Brentford, Scott McTominay, Leigh Brace, except being Sheffield United. So I can't look at a performance this season for they've been fantastic. That Crystal Palace in the Carabao Cup, all right. Chelsea was probably the the best performance of the season actually at Old Trafford, but Chelsea are terrible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, I, I agree with you, and I, I think that. I think a lot of fans might make a case for the Villa performance because they were having some joy against Villa in the first half despite being 2-0 down. But the, the context with that, of course, is that Villa were... I mean, their, their high line was suicidal. It was it was naive in the extreme what they did. And, OK, you can only... you know If you, if you get a win, you can't hammer them too much. But, well, you don't want to hammer them at all, really. And I don't think our coverage does that when, when United do get a win. It's, it's positive and, you know, looking at the... Um, the, the angles that are most interesting, but also positive angles from from those wins. But when they have won in the Premier League in in since the I mean since, since November internationals they've had three wins, which is I mean it's a dismal number. That's that's two months and three wins in the league. And you look and each win there's a caveat. Everton it was you know Everton batted them in the first half and United were somehow one nil up at half time without without creating a chance and fair enough in the second half they were clinical and took the game away from Everton Chelsea as you said a Chelsea they're dysfunctional they they are, uh, are probably more dysfunctional than than United are now Villa had their high line it was it was very naive the way they operated and you know we're we're positive about these wins at the time and rightly so and then days later United will have a negative result they'll have a defeat and you look upon that victory in not not in a different light because i think we're i think we're aware of the the issues and the shortcomings and we we reflect them at the time but in a in a pretty nuanced way but yeah they start to look a bit more fortunate than than they did at the time and as you said they've this style that ten hag was supposed to bring in and look people can talk about the united way or the tottenham way there's even been the west ham way essentially all these ways are the same way it's just plain attractive proactive, crowd-pleasing football that supporters are going to be excited by. And yeah, that, that's why Tottenham fans found uh, Conte to be anathema in his final months. That's why they never really took to Mourinho. A uh, bit of the Chelsea history at play there as well, of course. It's why some West Ham fans are still you know, not fully on board with, with David Moyes, even though he's just had the most successful year in his managerial career guiding them to a European trophy and um you know and, and, and quite high up in the table and they they won their Europa League group as well. But Ten Hag was supposed to I, I thought last season had United not qualified for the Champions League, which they were never in danger of not doing in the end because they were quite comfortable for the second half of the season. But if they'd had a season where they played good football and they, you know, they they rose in the table, had a cup run, supports would have been on board with that, even if it was a trophyless season. But he's had enough time now where they should be playing in a recognisable, proactive style and they can't master it. They they still can't master pressing, which has been a basic tenet of elite football teams for 15 years now, uh, I, at the very minimum. I mean, it, it became 
it became an an essential skill to have with Barcelona when when Barcelona started dominating under Pep Guardiola and Guardiola you know was, was appointed what in 2008 I think it was and yeah I still vividly remember uh, section portions of United's final defeats to Barcelona in, in Rome and at Wembley they were absolutely hopeless at pressing and they didn't have the they didn't have the players to to get lay a glove on them in that Wembley final for you know, lack of investment by the Glazers, Sralix Ferguson blind spot in midfield. But here we are, nearly nearly thirteen years on from that final, and United and know that they've not really advanced much as a pressing team at all. And they've got one or two players who can do it, like Fernandez or. Rasmus Hoyland, but there's a reason why it doesn't Ralph matter Rangnick, if a few players can do it. You need to press as a team. I it's know, a collective yeah. unit, isn't it? That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, Ralph Ralph Rangnick gave up on it after two or three games because he realised that the players weren't. He, he couldn't program the the players to do it. And I, I, I was never one of these um, one of these punters who thought, oh, yeah, Ronaldo scores a lot of goals, but he doesn't press. Like he he's one guy who who had a work rate, who scored lots of goals, and. He was in his mid thirties, so the rest of the team should be, you know, complimenting him. But you still have issues with someone like Rashford, who, I mean, yesterday was his fourth goal, and it was his first goal at Old Trafford since May. And he had the gall to, you know, make this yapping gesture during his celebration, as if to say, you know, critics can keep on talking. I'm thinking, look, you've scored four goals. Uh, Scott McTominay has still got more goals than you this season. You, you've you've got to do a bit more before you can start. Uh, you know, giving it back to critics, and many of those critics are, are paying supporters. You know, maybe, maybe he was aiming that at the match goers in the away end at, at Wigan on Monday night. But going back to Ten Hag, as as I've said a lot of you know quite often recently, this is his team, this is his squad. You can talk about getting time in football, and yeah, I, I take that point. And look, after they got thumped four 0 by Brentford last season, nobody was. There was there was some you know some of the criticism had to be levelled at Ten Hag, but the wider problem was was the players. That was clear. That was abundantly clear. He, he can't he can't play that excuse. He can't play that card anymore because this is a team and a squad that is in his image. And the one you know the one bit of sympathy I would have with him is that he has literally never been able to pick what many would regard as his strongest United team. He has I, to I agree with that and, and we, we made that point in the last podcast but then you look at Tottenham and I think that's why this podcast has been dare I say a little bit negative even though it was a draw because Tottenham have came to Old Trafford they've been without the six best players and they've played them off the park Yeah and um, that is something that really does undermine his his position it's not just at Tottenham it's at Bournemouth with Iriola who had a difficult start and then a month or two later, they're going to Old Trafford and they're running riot in a 3-0 win, where, by the way, they could have won by a greater margin. Um, Roberto De Zerbi was appointed um, at Brighton after Ten Hag was at United. Brighton have had a trickier season, but they're still doing still still doing pretty well. Um, they've, they've, they they topped their Europa League group. They're, they're having to navigate um, you know this this schedule of Thursday Sunday football, and they're doing it pretty laudably. And they have a set. They have a style that's recognisable. And look, in terms of playing auxiliary fullbacks, towards the end of last season, Moises Caicedo was popping up at right back for Brighton, and he looked like one of the best right backs in the league. He's he's gone to Chelsea, and you look at him, you think, did did you used to be Moises Caicedo? He's completely unrecognisable now. He's a shadow of the play he was at Brighton. Uh, Unai Emery at Aston Villa. Villa 
know what they're doing. They know they hit their cues. There's a reason why they're as high up in the table as they are. You can't just look the scrutiny and the pressure at United is on a different level from any other club. I get that. But when you're on a pitch, you should be able to drown that out and you're, you should be recruiting players who have the character to cope with that pressure and that scrutiny. And unfortunately for Ten Hag, and I've thought it for a while, I just think it's past the point of, of no return. I, I well, struggle I was, to see. I was going to ask how and can Ten Hag improve over the next few months, but I think the issues go beyond personnel, they're deeper than that. And we talked about the style and the lack of control and identity. And to coach that into a team, you surely need time. And that happens in pre-season. You set out your stall, your principles, you convey it to the players. It's not really something that you change mid-season. It's not really something you can coach in mid-January, is it? To, to have a, a strong second half to the campaign. You, you've named some coaches there, Emery, Deserby, etc. I mean, it didn't take long for them to get their, their principles over and, and for that to transfer to the pitch. And we're just not, we've not seen that, United. No, no. And look, I, I think, unfortunately for, for Ten Hag, I just think the way things have, have changed and uh, new investment coming in and the season that United have had, I, I struggle to see him being the man to take United back to the top now. And that's, that's, that has to be the aim for, for any Manchester United manager. When they come in, it's to make them champions again or to at least challenge for, for the title. They're not going to do that this season. Uh, yeah, there's, there's no point even looking ahead to next season because a hell of a lot, can, a hell of a lot is going to change between now, uh, now and August. But this, I, I'll say it again, this is his team. This is his squad. He has had enviable backing. In, even in the loan market, they've signed six players on loan under Ten Hag. They'd signed six players on loan in the previous 25, 27 years, I think it was. Uh, you know, a loan used to be a real novelty move by by Manchester United. But And I know the goalposts have changed with the profitability and sustainability rules and, and FFP and United are abiding by that. And uh, the loan market has, you know, has, has been of, of some use to them, uh, I, th- I think we can say. But when you when you look at Amrabat, it was a €10 million Euro loan fee for someone who was brought in as a backup midfielder. And they also knew that he was likely to miss a month because of AFCON. That's, that's not good business. It wasn't good business when you watched them in the first game. I think that became quite apparent pretty quickly. Um, in terms of the positives then, because there were a few, Casemiro and Martinez obviously back in the squad. Um, Martinez got a fantastic reception when he replaced Johnny Evans, who I think went off with a knock actually. And Hoyland, of course, that was an extinct, instinctive finish. It was really, really good into the roof of the goal. He's now the top goal scorer of seven goals, which is encouraging, Samuel, because I was a bit sick of seeing that Scott McTominay was the top goal scorer of six. Score, yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a, oh, it was a hell of a hit by by Hoyland. I mean, uh, I think um, it was it was a hit on behalf of of the supporters because Rashford obviously took the ball into the air and then it was delay, 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 plow into a, a defender with Hoyland. It was shift, touch, bang, and uh, it was almost as if Rashford uh, watched and learned from that because he took his goal um, similarly well when it was just one touch to control and then another one to to put it beyond uh, Vicario. But I thought Hoyland's overall performance was good. He he had a, he had more confidence about him. He carried himself with someone who thought he had a sense of belonging of of, of leading the line for United, which you've not always been able to say about him this season. It certainly wasn't the case at, at West Ham last month where he he looked quite 
quite forlorn during that game and he had been unwell in, in the build-up to it. So I've, I've no doubt that would have contributed. But even that run he went on the second half where he put a cross in and, and won a corner. Like he, he puts a shift in and that's never, ever been an issue with him. He he, he tries his heart out. He's, he's committed. He, he offers energy. He is a focal point. Um, there's a reason, like Forrest uh, last month when he wasn't there, it was, despite his poor goal-scoring record in the Premier League, it was a blow because United didn't have another striker to put um, to put up top. And if if Anthony Marshall was was fit and, and at Forest, it probably would have been an even greater blow because it would have meant that Anthony Marshall was was starting up top. So I was, I think everyone was 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 pleased for Hoyland when he scored that that goal against Villa, and they would have been pleased for him again yesterday. And the quality of those goals is is something you know. Where you see you see the potential there, and again, United they they had to have a proven goal scorer. They had to sign a proven goal scorer in the summer. It's all well and good getting a potential one in, but you had to have a proven one as well. But if they're you know they're committed to Hoyland, clearly that they they will need another goal scorer in the summer. There's no 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 two ways about that. But there are glimpses where you do see the potential there for someone who who can come up with twenty league goals in a season. Um, you know the the strike against Villa was very instinctive, but he, he connected with it beautifully, and it was well out of Martinez's reach. That one yesterday, I mean, it was a thumping hit. If you had three keepers in in, in goal there, they they weren't getting to that. It was just absolutely perfect. The execution of it, it was a it's a complete bolt from the blue. But he needed that. I mean, I think that's that's two league games running now that he scored in because he he was missing for the Forest game. So that will do him a power of good. And um, United have to hope that he maintains that for the running because the, the pressure is only going to become more intense. There's going to be more scrutiny. February is a huge, huge month as well as we've discussed already. And he's he's warming up for it pretty nicely. That's As I said, that's that's two league games running that he scored in. They were good goals as well. He, he's, he scored a, even in the Champions League this season. I think the manner of some of those goals was impressive for a variety of reasons that the second goal against Galatasaray was a really singular finish uh, the anticipation um, following up on, on Garnacho's saved shot in, in Copenhagen making the right run what I also liked about him yesterday a few minutes after he scored was that um, Dallow went on the overlap and put a cross in where he was trying to pull it back and it was blocked and went out for a corner and Hoyland was was berating him, telling him where he should have put the ball because Hoyland had made a near post run, run and he, he was telling him he should have made that cross. And I've seen that a few times from Hoyland already this season. He's not he's not afraid to give pointers to teammates who are far more far more senior with him and far more experienced of, of playing in the Premier League. But I like that. A striker needs to be like that. The the, the great strikers are going to be demanding of their teammates to provide, to provide them with service and. Unfortunately for Hoyland, after he scored yesterday, it was it was absolutely one of those games where you could say he didn't get enough service after uh, making such a such an auspicious start. We've always wondered when it was going to click for Hoyland, and hopefully he'll have a very strong end to the season because he's got bags and bags of potential, which is great to see. Uh, we'll be back in a moment for part three. We're launching a brand new bite-sized midweek audio-only podcast, bringing you the latest happenings from Old Trafford in a much more informal format. 
covering topical news, online gossip, transfers and personal tales as a roundup of everything you might have missed surrounding Manchester United. Join host Tyrone Marshall and myself, Rich Fay, as we go inside the club, separating the fact from the fiction and giving you an edge on your mates down the pub. Welcome back to part three of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now, Samuel, as we said in the first part, you journalists at the game had this, I was going to say a treat, is it a treat to have a, a conversation with Sir Jim Ratcliffe for the first time coming into the press room, um, give away a bit more colour, a bit more detail. What did he say? What can you touch upon? Well, I, I even thought before the game yesterday that it, like with a comms hat on, it would be a wise, a shrewd thing to do just to um, just to get him to introduce himself to us or just have some face time with him. It's it's an open goal for him as well because the, the Glazer family are, are so removed, so aloof. When we were at the MetLife Stadium in New Jersey in July, Avram Glazer walked past us and um, he, he won't, won't have known us from, from Adam. Uh, there's no two ways about it. Uh, I, I think that the, the Glazer family would, would struggle to recognise a Manchester United supporter if they walked past them. So already Ratcliffe has reached out to the relevant fans groups as well um, That with a, a letter he sent to them last month after the, the Christmas Eve announcement. And uh, yeah, we well, I was on my way to the ground. I got a message come through uh, say that he would... He would um, He'd, he'd, he'd speak to some of us for um, for, for a brief while uh, at half two, so we were all um, ushered into the press conference room because it was it was understandably busy there. Yes, in the press lounge, and I did think I did say to a, one of the press officers, it's probably more sensible to do it in the press conference room where it's away from from everyone and a bit quieter and a bit more spacious. But then, of course, you know, every man and his dog, it seemed, was was invited in there. there were, as I said, it was a veritable um, who's who of, of journalists, uh, some who I've, I've never seen at a United away game, never mind a, a United tour. But, yeah, I suppose they, a lot of people, well, everyone in there would have argued they, they had the right to be in there. And uh, he didn't have far to walk because the entrance, the main entrance to the press conference room, um, right opposite it, literally, uh, you know, it's it's the other side of the hallway is the exit to the from the director's lounge. So he just walked there through that through that corridor into the press conference room. I think everyone was stood at first. I think some were um, quite conscious, con- sorry, conscious of the fact that they um, they stayed in their seat when Eric Ten Hag came in and shook everyone's uh, shook the hands of those in in the front row. And I, I just you know, clarify, I was one who who actually you know stood to shake his hands. But a, a well, few I'm surprised you remember Scott, that, Samuel, because you you couldn't remember that there was waffles and Heineken on that day. Remember the other podcast when I told you that? So. Yeah, I know. I, I missed out on that. I think. Um, I think I, the best I got was a was a bacon roll that morning, which I wasn't too too sorry about at all. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think um, some colleagues can ever forget that they that the stick they got for not standing to uh, to greet the new Manchester United manager. Um, but in the end, Ratcliffe came in. He didn't. He didn't work the room. He didn't press the flesh. He just. Um, stood on that dice where the table is for press conferences. He stayed stood, uh, hands in his pockets. Um, but when he, you know, so showed himself, he's, he gave a quite a bashful hello. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's retained his accent as, as anybody who's, who's heard him speak. Uh, he's, he still sounds like someone who was born in the Northwest. Uh, he, he said they normally do well against Spurs, which used to be the case, not, not this season, unfortunately for United. And, 
then a, a few of us just kind of like bombarded him with quite succinct questions to see if um because we were told beforehand it would be on the record so we knew that we'd we'd get something out of it and uh, he he, confer- he he said it was just about the most exciting thing that he's he's ever done i think he said um what was it he said i think he said like i've i've done a few exciting things like he's been to the north pole and the south pole he's done marathon runs and uh, God knows what else, given um, g- given his his net worth in the the Sunday Times Rich list last year, and uh, he whittled off some names of heroes, goals, gigs, but he, he settled on on Kansnar, as he'd said before. Um, he was he was accompanied by a chap called Tom Crossy, who's the, essentially the Ineos Communications Director, and they they clarified that they were expecting regulatory approval from the Premier League in early to mid February. Uh, I think the plan is to have. A press conference to announce it, where we'll be able to speak to Ratcliffe at greater length. He 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 said, you know, no, I can't answer any questions really, but then he did, and he, he was conscious that, sorry, conscious that where they've still not had regulatory approval, he doesn't want to say too much. Uh, so it was it was good to be introduced to him. It was good just to to ask him a, a question. He, he he couldn't recall when he was last at a game or when he first went to Old Trafford. Um, he he's as he's said in other interviews, he, he certainly recalls being at, at Camp Nou in, in May 1999 for for the Champions League final. So um, he, he he intends to go to um, to games quite often. He said, obviously, he lives in France and he's got other other business ventures to 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 attend to. But I think it's safe to say that he'll be um, at Old Trafford a hell of a lot more often than than the Glazer family. And I, I remember I was. I said to you, I just put it in the in the doc that was to go in our blog. That oh, don't be surprised if Ratcliffe emerges with with Sir Alex Ferguson because Ferguson likes to align himself with the most powerful figures at the club, and obviously he was sat next to Dave Brailsford at Nottingham Forest last month. And of course, I think just as I'd finished typing that, Ratcliffe emerged with Ferguson, and it looked like they were going to sit next to each other, and they they did sit next to each other. So. I don't think Ratcliffe will mind whatsoever getting that very public endorsement from the chap who's got a stand named after him, a road named after him, and a statue outside of him at, at Old Trafford. Whenever new owners come into football clubs, there's always a, a few easy wins you can take, isn't there? Um, and I think Sir Jim Ratcliffe is doing that very well and ticking off some boxes, which is encouraging to see. Uh, some transfer news then, Samuel. Uh, Hannibal Medbury is on the move to Sevilla alone initially uh, with the option to sign him permanently for around £70 million. Could you just expand on that as well? Yes, you've. Uh, I think you've covered most of uh, the, the, the bases there. <laughs> what, what's your thoughts on it then? Because I think that there's there's a buyback option that United will have if Sevilla choose to make it a permanent deal, and I think United have only done that. They've only inserted buyback clauses into the contracts of, I think, four previous players. Which uh, that those players are, I think it was Memphis Depay, Adnan Yanazai, Sean Goss, which is a really really niche name. Um, I think Zidane Iqbal was was the most recent one before this, uh, mainly with these youngsters that they've been selling over the last uh, seven or eight months. It's it's all been about sell on clause because they've they've got pretty frugal fees for for most of them. I think Iqbal, who had had some relative prominence under Ten Hag, mainly during his first preseason tour, he was he was sold for a million euros. So United didn't even get. Um, seven figures of him in, in for him in, in pound sterling. But with, with Mejbri, given that 
he's he's still technically while well, he's still at United, he's got eighteen months left in his contract. They paid ten million euros for him uh, when he was a sixteen year old at Monaco. He's been developed at United. He's played. Uh, he's had a season in the Championship, which uh, is is almost as good as most of the major European leagues in terms of its intensity and its competitiveness. He's a Tunisia international. He's got some United first team experience as well. Uh, they they had to be they had to be making uh, or looking to make a profit on that. And again, I think that's a deal in a, it, that's in everyone's interest that Meshbury does well there because he's not got the pathway um, to the first team when he's had he's had opportunities this season. Well, he um, had a, he had a mini breakthrough in September, didn't he? Really, when he started Turf more and um, clocked up those amazing running stats. Um, started again like was it against Crystal Palace, I think. So he started consecutive games for the for the first time in his United career, and then Tenag actually singled him out in a press conference and kind of used him as an example and said, "Look, if young players want to progress, look at Hannibal. Look what he's done." But yeah, after that, I think he started against Galatasaray as well. And he was brought off um, at half time, and yeah, yeah and it's it's just not went the plan since then from, which has obviously made him consider his future. No, and I, I did think during that Burnley game where he you know, he really did put himself about, and as you said, uh, that the, the running stats were impressive. But this is this is his problem. He is a very good footballer when he doesn't have the ball. When he was given the ball in those games, I can't think of anything that he... There wasn't a great deal he, he did with it. There was maybe one pass he played at Burnley where he sprang Rashford through, but uh, by and large, he's, he's for, for someone who is, is really a playmaker, like he, he plays, he's often played as a number 10 for, for the junior teams. When he got the ball, he, he wasn't effective enough with it. And if you're a playmaker, you, you've got to got to make the team play and you, you couldn't say that about Mejbri in, in those three starts that he had so I don't think it's a case of he's he's not being given a fair crack of the whip I, I've seen you know of course United have a, a very very large following in, in Norway and there's there were some disgruntled fans at the lack of chances or opportunities Isaac Hansen Aaron's been been given and I think you and Rich have been all over that and Rich was saying to me yesterday that the 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 view in Norway has been that his his trajectory was um he, he was further ahead than than Oscar Bob up, up to a point which you you obviously can't say that now but when, when I've seen Hansen Aaron play in friendlies I've I've not exactly thought yeah he should definitely be on on the bench or in the first team squad this season I think maybe he he was given the uh, you know I think Rich said that there was a suggestion that he was going to be in the first team squad. This season, I do remember in the summer there was a report in Norway suggesting that he was going to go on the pre-season tour with the first team and I thought that was a stretch and that didn't happen. But maybe there have been some broken promises there, maybe there haven't. But ultimately, I don't think he's ever looked like a player who is going to you know, make the breakthrough at Manchester United. Mejbri, of course, was a much more high-profile addition when he was a teenager and he's had a lot more exposure. But it boils down to... His his efficacy with with a football, which is very, um, yeah, it's a very basic. Um, if if you if that's a flaw in your game, that's that's going to be a big issue in terms of you you trying to make your your way at Manchester United. And um, I mean, Sevilla, it yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's a team club with with good pedigree in Europe in the last fifteen years or so. But this season. Um, they're they're in a real pickle. They're only about three points above the relegation zone. They've won three of their twenty games in La Liga. I mean, it was a it, United should have been gutted to have lost to them in in the Europa League last season because it was a really bad Sevilla team. But 
Sevilla being Sevilla, they they still won the Europa League. It's it's a tournament that they're um that they're pretty addicted to, but I don't think they've even dropped into that uh, this season, f- f- having having gone out of the Champions League. So that's that's the dire state they're in. I think they're on their third different manager as well this season. So it's become quite a dysfunctional club, having for a number of years been uh, a model club with a, a highly regarded. Um, director of football or sporting director, whatever Monchi's title was there and the success they had in the Europa League as well. Um, but it's it's still a good move for Mejbri. But given that he was go- he's going there on loan initially, I, I always think that if you're a young player at United and you're looking, it's certainly if you're in your 20s, if you're going, if you want to head um, head abroad on loan, you are you might as well go there permanently because you're warming up to play in a different different culture, different environment, a different league. Um, if he was looking to get a loan in the Premier League, you'd have thought maybe there's a, a chance that he'll go back to United and, and stay at United. But I think it's it's you know, come to a natural conclusion now for him. And if, if United can get 17 million for him, that's that's actually pretty pretty good going. Everton obviously had an interest in Hannibal as well. And I was chatting to one of our colleagues at the Liverpool Echo about him and I basically said what you've just summarised, saying he needs to add goals and assists in the final third. And that's the next challenge for Hannibal, isn't it? Um, the area of his game that needs to improve the most. Another transfer then, it's, it's about to go through Alvaro Fernandez coming back from Granada um, with a view to joining Benfica on loan. Uh, there's an option to buy, including that deal as well. It's been an interesting moment with Fernandez, Samuel, because he's always shown a bit of quality. I think he should have definitely made his debut by now. He's denied that actually by Ralph Ranić. Um, he started Alex Tellez in the final day of that season and um, he should have started for against, Crystal, against Palace. Crystal Palace yeah. at, at Sellers Park. Yeah, so that was a shame. Um, but he, he's always had senior players ahead of him, unfortunately. You've got Luke Shaw and Malassia ahead of him. So it was always going to be a challenge to, to bridge that gap to the first team with those players. Yeah. And look, I think they've they've been a lot more decisive with with youngsters under Ten Hag, uh, what whatever their their level. I mean, the way United look at it is that if a youngster goes on loan to a Championship club, they think that they've got a chance of making the step up at United because the Championship is obviously it's the second tier in England, and it's as I said earlier, it's it's, it's an extremely competitive, cutthroat environment that, that there's a good warm up act for you making possibly make an impression in the Premier League but United have quite decisively decided with Hannibal Mejbri, Ten Mengi, Ethan Laird, Alvaro Fernandes as well given that he did very well at Preston last season that that there's not going to be a a pathway for them at the club and then it's in everyone's interest to to move them on and 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 to try and extract um sorry obtain a a fee for them so yeah it's you know it, it doesn't feel that long ago at all that Fernandez and Marcarado arrived in in Manchester with their um, with with their masks on at the height of COVID. Well, same summer as Ganacho, though, wasn't it as well? Twenty twenty. Yeah, it was it was that summer. So um, United were looking at it, I think you know one out of three of them making it into the first team isn't isn't bad going, and I think there was probably more more fanfare around Gerardo and um, and Fernandez because they were coming from Real Madrid. Uh, sorry, Barcelona and Real Madrid, whereas Garnacho was coming from Atletico Madrid, who, of course, yeah. very big club, but re- everyone knows Real Madrid and Barcelona are on a different different level to them. And uh, I, I don't think that necessarily helped Garnacho's uh, development as such. It's not like he's flown under the radar, that he's he's played in the more advanced role where you're, where you're judged more. He He's just an exceptional young player and he's shown he's, he's definitely um, good enough 
at this level in the Premier League. I suppose with with Fernandez, he's as soon as he went on loan to Granada, you just immediately thought, well, he's he's, he's warming up to go back to to Spain or an environment that um, that that is similar to one that he grew up in. And of course, you know, Portugal is. Portugal borders border Spain, so um, Benfica. Uh, Benfica have got an excellent record with young players as as well, so it looks good, I suppose. And yeah, you can see him having a future. Ab- absolutely, and uh, in hindsight, I suppose his um, you know, if if United weren't as hasty uh, in in letting him go out on loan, maybe he'd have had a breakthrough this season. Because I think a lot of United fans would have rather have had him at left back than Sergio Reguilón, but. These sliding doors moments happen all the time for youngsters. You only have to go back to Rashford's breakthrough. How many? Will Keane got injured a few days beforehand. Uh, Ashley Fletcher was out on loan at Barnsley. If, if Ashley Fletcher is not on loan at Barnsley, he probably starts up front against Mitchelland and maybe scores two goals and maybe he's still a Manchester United player and maybe he's an England international rather than someone who... Um, was was one of the um, was on the cast list of, of Sunderland till I die. So it's it's, it's you know these these things happen so often. But uh, ultimately, I, I think United are going about it in the right way with with youngsters and being more decisive in in, in just selling them because there were there were times when some of them were just really outstanding their welcomes and the goalkeeping department was particularly bloated and. Uh, there were certain youngsters getting new contracts. I mean, I was, I was surprised by the length of Joe Hugel's contract um, go, going up to 2026. But in the main, they they have been more proactive at um, using the academy as a cash cow, which you've got to do because look, the majority of them are not going to go into the first team squad. It's it's impossible when you you just look at how many players you've got at under 18, under 16, under 21 level. Uh, you've you've got to use it as a cash cow, as as Manchester City have done uh, with with players who were never ever going to play for the first team. I think United's academy it's still got that clout. Um, it's it's produced some brilliant players for the first team and for other clubs, and they've got to maximise that as much as possible, given the profitability and sustainability uh, rules that clubs are very uh, are having to abide by now. Well, the main objective is to obviously get players to the first team, but I don't think people actually realise or appreciate how many players are in United's academy come through and then go on to have careers throughout the, the football system. I mean, even in League One, League Two, up in SPL at the moment, you've got um, obviously Will Fish on loan and oh, Dylan Levitt, that's his, his name was alluding us there, but Dylan Levitt's up there at Hibs. So you see these players and they play for the under-21s and they might not be good enough for United but to have a career is still a fantastic achievement because at the end of the day Samuel I've saw me and you at five aside and we're, we're not getting to that level unfortunately no 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 the, the, the only privilege we'll have uh, hopefully again is, is is the press game in, in, in May uh, that, that could be your debut if you're not at a Bruce Springsteen concert or gallivanting in Poland or, or yeah, tickets tickets doubled this year so up to like £250 or for Springsteen so I'm not going so I should be there I should be. Uh, is it, it's, it sounds like he's a, a white collar man now rather than a blue collar man unfortunately well, me, and my dad, me and my dad joked about that actually for being such a working class uh, supporter etc from that area of America and these songs and what they mean shouldn't be charging people that much you really shouldn't anyways thank you very much Samuel thanks for your time thank you Stephen again as always and thanks to the listeners me and Samuel will be back on Friday but if you want a bit more from the Manchester is Red podcast Tyrone Marshall and Richfield will be back on Wednesday for the new show so see you then and have a great week bye 
Good morning, Manchester United fans. I've got something very special on my computer screen behind me. We have got a exclusive access to the interview that Jim Ratcliffe had with journalists yesterday at Old Trafford ahead of the Tottenham Hotspur game. And I'm going to add the audio to the end of this video. Uh, just be aware, it's quite a low quality recording, so I've had to enhance it. So you might find that the audio is a little bit bitty, a bit poppy, but I'm going to enhance it a bit more. I'm going to boost the audio levels just so you can hear exactly what Jim Ratcliffe said when he spoke to journalists yesterday at Old Trafford. I haven't seen or heard this recording anywhere else. So as far as I'm aware, it's an exclusive recording. So it could be a first look, could be a first listen to what Jim Ratcliffe has to say as an owner or soon-to-be owner of Manchester United. But it's really fascinating, really interesting how he's so open with journalists. And hopefully, unlike the current ownership, We'll have a lot more exposure to the owner as and when time goes on. So check it out. And don't forget, there'll be a Manchester is Red podcast talking a lot more in depth about this. I'm reviewing the Spurs game this afternoon with Samuel Luckhurst and Stephen Railston. Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm here to say nothing really. <laughs> it's the first match for me since we sort of got there, if you like. Um, I'm very excited to be here, but I say I can't answer any questions really. I don't think that would be appropriate, honestly. Um, yeah, we're going to have a big match. So. We normally do well against Spurs, I'm happy. <laughs> we did well again. Have you spoken to Eric or the players at all? Sorry? Have you spoken to Eric or the players at all? No, uh, I think. When, when we get all of. I mean, I've met Eric, obviously, but no, it would sort of be inappropriate, really, I think, until it's all been formalised. How long is the gym until it will be formalised? How long do you think it will be until it's formalised now? I think it's still early, 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 early Feb. Early to mid Feb, we think. Yeah, yeah hopefully, fingers crossed. So, yeah. Gerard, sorry. We hope you don't find anything dodgy in CV. I mean, is this as. You're a Northwest board. Is this as exciting as anything you've ever done? Correct. Yes. But, but you just, I've done a few exciting things. But well, I, I understand that. But I mean, that's the. This caps it all. When did you last here for a, for a game? When, when did you last go to a trap for a game? Well, three, three days ago. Can you say a little bit about how, how long have you sort of harboured ambitions? How long? How long have you harboured ambitions to be involved in some capacity in the water? Years. We just take a few terms, as you know, yeah. along the rabbit cut. These things quite a few isn't it? What? I did, well, tell you that well in the end. How often do you plan to come to games? Um, yeah, you know, I'll come and because I, I, I can't come all the time because I've got a few other things to manage. <laughs> so, but I'll, I'll come quite a lot, I would think. I can't think all of them. What do you see as the biggest challenge? Yeah, I know that there's a lot to do with I think we're getting into yeah, I think the future there. That, that sort of, you know, we haven't really spent much time here. Right. What have your first impressions uh, been? First impressions? Of Carrington and here. Yeah, I can't, I don't, I don't think it would be appropriate. Good question. I'll ask you a hard then I'll do my best to I'll ask a hard hitting one now then. Who are your favourite players growing up? Sissy Eric. Eric. 
Harry was probably my biggest hero. When did you first come here? When what? When did you first come here? Do you remember your first day? I was a kid. Quite young. Ten or something like that. But I don't know. So Jim, a long time ago when I was ten. <laughs> Sixty years ago. So Jim, you're allowed to have some influence over the January window under the terms of the owners and directors test, but not execution. Have is that is that happening now? Can't come that one. I think that'd be should have been that one. Deal is, guys. We're going to do this properly when we complete. You know, Jim's very keen to go up with you guys, so we know how important you are. And I'm hoping we'll treat you that way, so we'll keep this flow going. But in the meantime, just guess saying yeah. hello. Very surely, Max. The questions are getting more difficult. Scott, look sharp. Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.